Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Oliver Gatz from Northwest London, and you're listening to Dame Baptiste Questions Everything. My question is, at which film did the career of Jean-Claude Van Damme go south, and why? Here comes the show, and remember, question everything. Hello everybody and welcome to Dane Baptiste Questions Everything, a podcast for myself, comedian, writer and occasional actor Dane Baptiste, and my producer friend Howard Cohen, aka The Hither. Hello! And a mix of very special guests pose the questions that need to be asked, and we are talking everything from... Well, we're talking everything from Oliver, from North, North West London's question, what film made the career of Jean-Claude Van Damme go south? Did, I mean, Oliver, did the career of Jean-Claude Van Damme ever go south? I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting point. Um, Dane, where do you stand? I mean, I'm probably the wrong person to ask because I have very strong opinions regarding uh, martial art actors like Jean-Claude Van Damme. So I would say, for me personally, as soon as John Woo started making films in America, and Jackie Chan started making films in America. Then John Claude Van Damme, Steven Seagal, Dolph Lundgren, all the fake martial art guys. It was it was a wrap for them. So I don't think there's one particular film. Although I, I would say, say there's one particular film, Street Fighter, right? Street Fighter for Jean Claude Van Damme definitely didn't help his career. That's, that's a better answer. That being said, though, Kylie Minogue was also in Street Fighter, and she did all right somehow. Yeah, she was a yeah, different career path, I'd say. <laughs> but well, that being said, I think you're right. I think, yeah, for me, Street Fighter was like a Belgian man playing an American man who couldn't do martial arts. I was like, yeah, this is, this is terrible. Yeah. Anyway, we, are, we ask all the questions. That's what this podcast does. That's right. And if you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify, where you'll never miss an episode, or subscribe to us on ACAST, the world's largest podcast network. And you can hear all of the questions from all the most special guests. That being said, on today's show is a British TV producer and comedian described as the UK's only Orthodox Jewish comedian. His live shows have earned him rave views at both the Edinburgh Festival and Broadway. He wrote and presented in his own BBC radio show, A Guide to Judaism, and his new four-part series, 6.5 Children, comes on BBC Radio 4 in 2021. He also produced and directed the massively famous but now highly controversial sketch show, Little Britain for Radio 4. Welcome to the show with a big shalom, Ashley Blaker. Hello, Dane. Thank you. Thank you for having me. What an intro. My pleasure. I know. Welcome to the show. And a big like shalom back. Hours, so I guess. Oh, that's most appreciated. And uh, yeah, I'm not the to myself for getting you on the show. Uh, so how's life? It's very good. I'm very impressed with all the lingo you've got there. But then you've been hanging out with Howard Cohen. And uh, uh, I don't know uh, it helps. The name, the name suggests that he's a member of the tribe. So. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm in. He's I'm, in, I'm very much in. in. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. And oh, not to the level that you are, actually. Not to the same standing uh, <laughs> and commitment levels, obviously. The more he plays it down, the more Jewish he sounds when he's playing down being a member of the tribe. <laughs> Where do you stand on the work of Georges Claude Van Damme, Ashley? It's not what I thought I'd ask you today, but here we are. Um, I'm not a, so au fait with all of his catalogue, I must be honest. I think he's a man who, had he not come from Brussels and therefore able to have a very good nickname, 
he probably wouldn't be as famous. He was famous just because he was from the Muscles from Brussels, which is a very mm. good rhyming nickname. But had he been from Antwerp yeah, yeah. or Bruges, yeah. it wouldn't have worked. <laughs> he probably wouldn't have been as famous. Yeah, interesting point. I quite liked uh, Steven Seagal. I preferred Steven Seagal. But he's just changed so much. I saw a photo of him recently. He just looked uh, very much like my friend Paul Putner. If you Google what Paul Putner looks like and what <laughs> Steven Seagal looks like, I think it's the same person. He did make some half-decent films, Jorkula Van Damme. Time Cop would be the ultimate, I think. Uh, in my... That was a good movie. That was decent. He made, and, that, and he also made a double team with Dennis Rodman. And you think how someone was able to pitch that in a boardroom in Hollywood, you don't know. But um, yeah, they pulled it off and it was okay. I, I, there was a point in time where both of those people were very much sought after. Now, you try and tell that to somebody in 2020, they'll laugh in your face. Yeah, Dolph Lundgren as well. There's lots of these people. Dolph Lundgren, yeah. All, the, all these guys, yeah. And, you, know, well, you can watch the... Uh, Expendables. Expendables. Expendables, that's it, yeah. yeah. You can watch the Expendables and uh, and see them all there, can't you? I mean, it was a good era for that stuff, no, wasn't it? It was it was a, it was a fun time uh, for those kind of people, but they they definitely have had their day a little bit, haven't they? Yeah. Also, I think what killed those kind of guys off was the end of the video store, because that's the kind of thing you would that's go true. to blockbusters, and you you wouldn't want <laughs> you wouldn't go to blockbusters hoping to come home with a Jean-Claude Van Damme but somehow that's the kind of thing you'd come home with and I reckon that those kind of movies I don't know like now because those you wouldn't watch that on Netflix when you could watch I don't know Orange is the New Black or something decent yeah. but you would go to blockbusters and the thing you wanted to see wasn't in so you ended up with something rubbish with Steven Seagal. That doesn't happen in the streaming era. You never be brilliant. It should do. You should go to Netflix and only a certain <laughs> number of people are allowed to watch something at once. So you go to Netflix and too many people are watching The Crown. So you have to watch something rubbish. And see. <laughs> <laughs> they should do that. It's quite a good idea. Exactly. Or if you default on your Netflix payments, it's like, well, now you get to the basic selection, which means you don't get to see any of the like documentaries, none of the uh, box sets, but you get this stream of, what we call the blockbuster collection. And that's right, exactly. you can watch until you pay for Netflix. Or it's like, you know when you go to the airport and you want to buy a bottle of water, but it's like six pounds and they're like, you get it for free if you buy the Times newspaper and you go, fine, I'll get the newspaper and you just leave the newspaper and keep the bottle of water. That's kind of how it works. It's like, in order for you to get what you want, you have to rent a copy of Dolph Lundgren in <laughs> Final Justice 6. Universal yeah. Soldier 2. I used to like all those films. I used to, I used to go to the video store and they, I, my other memory of the video store was that they had all these Bruce Lee knockoffs with men. Oh, yeah. They were like, Bruce Lee, L-I. Bruce Lee, yeah, yeah. L-E-I-G-H. Bruce Lee, L-E. Bruce Lee, L-E-E-E. None of them were Bruce Lee. <laughs> but they were like a kind of yeah. clickbait. They were there to make you think, oh, Bruce, that's a Bruce Lee film I'm not aware of. I do. I remember that. I remember that very well. The Bruce Lee, and that went from for a long time. And then I think, obviously, in that vacuum is where we got all of these, like, someone called Van Damme and Steven Seagal, that big vacuum exactly. that uh, Bruce Lee kind of left. Until, I'd say, uh, yeah, until Jackie Chan did, like, Rumble in the Bronx, kind of brought it back to Hong Kong cinema, as did Quentin Tarantino in a roundabout way. And The Matrix. I think The Matrix definitely changed martial arts films so that you can't really get away with the uh, kind of Jean-Claude Van Damme standard of martial art action. Yeah, yeah. Although, you know what? I think he, he was quite the character, Jean-Claude Van Damme. If you read up on him, um, pretty mad guy. I definitely heard a thing about how he didn't wash for about three years was one thing. So um, make your own judgments uh, on that. Maybe he just didn't like water. I don't know. 
fine, but that's quite a commitment to not shower for that long. You have to go and read that. After. I mean, yeah, I'm gonna put that up because now, because now he rolls around in ice and snow, drinking cold light, so it'd be fine with frozen water. Mm, could be, could be worse, couldn't it? Could be worse. Anyway, it's probably time for a question, isn't it, Dane? As as the format of this show dictates. Absolutely. So, uh, actually, as our very esteemed guest, we invite you to ask the first question, which we will all discuss. Fifty minutes and some change. And then how to ask another question, and we will do the same. And then lather, rinse, repeat. I will ask you a question, which we all discuss. Then you plug, plug, and everybody have a nice time. Okay. So my question for you is, is social media a waste of time? (laughs) (laughs) What inspired this thought? (laughs) You know what? it's, It's been a thought that's... I've had for a while, to be honest. It's really struck me over. And I've had quite a few friends of mine have actually recently left social media or or they've just kind of handed it over to people to kind of promote stuff in the third person but don't really want to uh, deal with it anymore. And it just, when I go on Twitter, I just realise it's just such a kind of cesspit of horrible opinions, uh, trolls. I I hate the fact that I'm just going to be very serious now, but I hate the fact that there is anonymity that I, we have to be kind of ourselves, but anyone can just create a name and um, just write whatever they like. I actually don't read replies anymore. I just stopped reading them. Uh, Also, but it just feels like a waste of time. It feels also very weighted in like, one direction insofar as like if you went on and said if i went logged on tonight and said something racist i would probably like kill my career but if i tweet the greatest joke ever it'll have almost no impact at all on my life yeah like you know even if you get like you get a hundred thousand likes who cares like what they're worthless and then you see some people who kind of go on about it i was listening to a a, a rival podcast recently and I was hearing somebody who was like bigging up their career in terms of how many likes they had on different tweets and I was thinking who cares this is a total waste of time yeah I would say that there are definitely strands of people in entertainment whose careers benefit massively from having an interaction with social media so so you know Dane you know we've talked about a lot of things on social media with our podcast we we made a little video about some of the most racist comedy uh, of the 70s uh, that got quite a lot of good responses. And, and in that sense, it felt like a progression of our narrative in a, in a way, right? Or I, I would say this, Dane will explain in great idea, but it certainly progresses your narrative at times, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think, but I think um, just uh, following from Ashley's point, I, I think is the question, is the problem social media or is it our conduct on social media? Because um, when it comes to the discussion of like social media, for me, I was I look at it like this: is that this is a new state for human beings to have discourse in, and our collective consciousness as people on social media is basically teenaged because that's how long it's been around and given us the ability to do that for about a teen number of years. And as a result, I feel like uh, social media how it operates globally is like it's like a global high school, and if you kind of are able to regress to how people were in high school it gives you more of an idea of why the landscape of social media looks the way it looks. Like a lot of the vitriol and the racism that you see being tweeted is the kind of thing you would see written in a cubicle in a public toilet or in a bathroom toilet at school. Like this person's flag and this racist thing and people write sports stickers and stuff. And the reason why people write that kind of thing in public toilets is because they had the gift of anonymity. And social media has allowed that part to kind of migrate over. And I think why people have the like, hypersensitivity, the weird thing that we validate people for nothing else other than their superficial beauty, um, 
or what appears to be ostentatious wealth are the things that we tend to and and also you know revealing our sexuality and you know in terms of the pictures that people take on social media these are all things that are your preoccupations when you're an adolescent and i think that mentality uh is what we see kind of having it uh manifesting on social media because we're all like people who regress to teenagers on there anyway so i think when you're like is it a waste of time i think it can be a waste of time depending on how people use it in the same way that you know if you're in school and your entire focus is your popularity and if you're liked you'll find yourself wasting your time when you finish come to the end of your school uh, time i think it's very similar with uh, social media as well as that it's, it's how people use it really do you really feel that the benefit is so worthwhile i, I feel that people get fixated on on something that is completely meaningless to that people yeah. like a popularity to this completely i've seen people who you know in terms of what we do dane uh for yeah. a living we can have yay many thousand followers and yay many thousand likes per post and what have you but unless you can actually translate it into selling tickets for a show yeah. when you go back to touring then it is worthless it's it's really is what you 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 can't live off it you can't feed your yeah. kids with it. it. That's what I mean. And that's the problem. That's the problem. No, I, I agree. I, that's the problem is that there are, but we live in a state now where I think people depend on social media as a phenomenon so much now for validation where they feel boost. marginalized. Yeah, absolutely. In places where they are normally marginalized or their opinion isn't entertained. Like a lot of people have work or work or their life work or livelihood does not provide them with the same platform for them to, to indulge their opinions. And I think that this is like a drug. Social media, you know, when people get likes and stuff, there is a chemical release of like dopamine that comes from that validation and i think because of that people are addicted and like and i think you're right they are they are wasting their time but it's because yeah people can now consider these metrics such as how many likes and how many clicks and how many shares are indicative of your success or indicative of your quality of uh of product and it's crazy because what people don't understand i think with social media is that when we are looking at some things we're looking at the spectacle rather than looking at it with a you know appreciation or enjoying something that's like Someone, I heard someone say it really, really put it really well. Like, if we're driving past a car crash and a free car pile up on a motorway, you'll slow down and you'll look. But it's not because you enjoy it. It's not something you want to continue thinking about or, you know, you're not going to go and be like, oh, I need to go find out what the next car crash is. But you'll rub a neck when you see a spectacle. doesn't mean you enjoy it. And I think that's how social media, again, kind of skewed people's perceptions and allows them to waste their time because people are so addicted to the validation and attention they get from a post, irrespective of whether it's, malicious or benevolent that they still continue to invest in this because I, th I think that now attention is now the new currency it's now a new, new form of human currency especially how we exist on social media and that's what's allowing for us to waste our time so yeah i, I definitely get it but i, just think, I think it's a uh, it's quite a deep problem it's more than just like you know a trend i think it's more of a real physiological issue do you think that it's going to be <coughs> something that we look at in years to come as, as something that changes now? Because how long have we had this stuff for? What, best part of a decade, I guess? Probably, yeah, a little bit more than a decade, I'd say, because I remember things like MSN Messenger and the like would have been, yeah, late, late 90s. Like, like the chat rooms, and, chat rooms and that would have been like that. It could have been on social. But in the early noughties, yeah. But in the early noughties, I think it'd be yeah, when we kind of, Twitter's like 2006 or so. I've been on it since yeah. the very start. I was like a very early adopter with Twitter. And I was looking, you know, you can see how many tweets you've made, like in that, yeah, yeah. Or whatever. And I've tweeted something like two and a half thousand times, like in, from the very start. And that most yeah. people like who've been on that period have been like, 
over 60,000. So like the, yeah. I'm tweeting <laughs> at like one or something on average over that period, something like 1.5 or two times a week. And some people are like six, seven times a day. I mean, God, I just, I don't know. I just feel like I, just, I, I recently turned off all notifications. I don't ever read replies. I don't ever read the at stuff. I don't read any of If you did, I don't know how you'd get anything done. I mean, literally a waste of time. I mean, I don't know, honestly, how you'd do anything. Yeah. And I think that's what happens. People, they don't do anything and they, they, uh, you could, it can have effects on your mood in reality as well. It can cause that kind of problem. And I think like, even for me, where it's like, you, that need to have the last word about a statement that you make and you, you could definitely fall down what we call a rabbit hole and I think um, it can be a waste of time and like, and like I said it, it, people are not really used to this state of discourse so what we're referring to as like cancel culture now isn't anything that's particularly daunting or has any physiological effect on you but it's like I said if you've got thousands and thousands of followers like your JK Rowling and you make a statement that is considered offensive like if I have 30,000 followers and you know 300 of those people tell me to shut up. It's pretty bad, but, you know, you can probably neglect it. If you're J.K. Rowling and you've got a million followers and you've got over a half a million people telling you to shut up, I can understand, yeah, it's the effect they can have on you. Why should you call for a council culture? But it's like, if you were told to shut up by somebody in the street, it probably wouldn't have the same effect on you. But, it's yeah, it's just this yeah false reality that I think is the issue. And, and yeah, very easy to waste time because when you're in a false reality, there's no uh, incentive for you to leave that reality if it's benefiting you. So I think that's how people say it's waste so much time. Well, and also, it, it, it's, it's, it's are you actually affecting anything is the thing, right? Is it, that's kind of what oh, yeah. your question leads to, really, doesn't it, Ashley? Which is, is, is it, I would say, on, on one level, is social media a waste of time? No, because it has furthered some very um, important narratives. Me Too, which is something that I think we can, you know, genuinely say has changed our world and... Maybe not right now. We'd say it's all for the better, but I think in the long run, hopefully it'll all be for the better. Could that have happened as easily without social media? Almost certainly not, right? Uh, I suppose. I mean, there, there are... I, I just I wonder if it'll move on, though, to a new... to something slightly different. And I wonder if there'll be a... I almost wonder if there'll be, particularly in terms of uh, how people interact. I think that's the thing. I think you might there might be a new something new will come along that allows people, particularly people who of a, you know, let's pull up public eye, let's say, you know, people in the public eye, celebrity, whatever, a platform where you can just kind of like put out essentially what amounts to a press release, but without all that kind of interaction, it's just unbelievable. And some people, as, as you say, fall down the rabbit hole and then like start interacting with it. Gary Lineker, I saw, he was obviously a big user of social media. He like tweeted the other day something about, uh, due to the rule of six that came in today, when we're recording this, uh, that he would only able to have yay many asylum seekers living in his house or something like that. He was going to allow some asylum seekers to live with him. And then people were like <laughs> having a go at him, but he was replying to every one of them. I just thought, wow, do you not have anything to do, surely? No, he doesn't. No, he definitely doesn't. Come on the podcast, Gary. We'd happily talk to you about your policies uh, and your thoughts on immigration. It'd be uh, very interesting. I, I, I don't know. It just seems a very odd thing. You wouldn't do that um, on the street. I mean, obviously, you wouldn't have people wouldn't address you in that way. Uh, also, I, I definitely think, though, for sure, it would be good if there was some kind of... Um, it, no one could be anonymous, basically. They should just somehow get rid of that anonymity. Almost yeah, in the same way that you, if you have a blue check, you have to send your photo of your passport or what have you. Just have yeah. everyone needs to be verified in some way, basically. 
Yeah, or, or at least have threads being restricted. Because I think, on the one hand, and this is the thing with the social media, like any like big phenomenon that affects humanity, is like when we discovered fire. We obviously know fire can heat our homes and cook our food, but fire can also burn down your houses and cause irreversible damage to your environment. So it's just a question of us learning how to manage that power. And I think social media is very similar. And I, I agree with the potential uh, incentive initiative of having people have to, you know, remove, removing anonymity if people want to be on the internet, on social media, and especially if they want to contact other people. But potentially it could be depending on the thread that someone's in. So if you want to tweet within, you know, political discourse or tweet a verified person, like maybe a member of parliament or, you know, a figurehead, then you have to remove your anonymity if you participate in that thread. Because so I think on the other hand, if people always have to surrender their privacy to social media, then if you give that data over to social media, who are they going to give that to in, in turn? So it's always a, it's a weird line, I suppose. I, I agree with you in terms of if, yeah, there should be a removal of anonymity if people are going to engage in like trolling. But I think it might be that, yeah, there's a lot of streamlining that might be required for social media that you have to be of a certain type of... Because there's, there's certain reasons where people may need to hide their identity, for, you know, for, for good reasons. But then you would argue if you're trying to hide or lay low, you probably want to be talk to people on social media with you <laughs> i don't know <laughs> no, i mean i look i don't know i mean i i suppose you know in cb radio people didn't have like you wouldn't you know if that was like the precursor like i don't know that like, you didn't have you weren't uh you just had like a handle you weren't you didn't have to say your real name but I, as I, said, I wasn't actually necessarily wanting to get bogged down in that whole issue about like particularly twitter and that kind of thing i guess I mean, in general just people on facebook just posting photos of you know, their kids <laughs> going to school or whatever. It just all just yeah. feels sometimes like... It is really interesting. Well, I mean, one of the great things is, is, is with my, you know, younger members of my family, family, nephews and nieces, I often say to them, oh, what are you looking at on Instagram? And they'll be like, I'm looking at this video of this guy doing this stupid thing. And I would be like, okay, tell me something, yeah? What's the greatest thing you've ever seen on Twitter or Instagram? And they'll be like, oh, I can't really tell you. I'm like, well, you can't remember anything that you've fucking watched on it. Does, it. does it mean anything to your life then? Is it just that disposable that it's just so pointless yeah. that you don't even remember I, it? Yeah, I really, uh, you know, last week was that soccer aid match. And I overheard my two eldest boys, they're 16 and 15. Uh, and they were talking about Chunks, is it? Someone who... Yep, yeah, yep. I, I, Funny guy. I, I like... <laughs> Yeah, and and uh, they're going. Oh, you miss and they're talking about, and they were talking with each other. And I go, "What? Who, who are these people?" They go, "Oh, there's people on YouTube. They're people with it. Brilliant. They're brilliant people." And then I sometimes like watch what they watch on YouTube, and I don't want to sound like the typical old man father, but the people they're into are rubbish. And and I know you could say, well, every generation would be like that. Or maybe my dad said that. But no, that's not true. When I was their age, maybe I was just a pretentious twat. But when I was their age, I remember going to see John Sessions. uh, uh, And I I loved Steve. I had an obsession with Stephen Burkhoff and saw all his plays and and things. And what they a friend of mine, Steve Hall, so you probably know the comedian Steve Hall, said to me the other day Mm -hmm. that what he feels like when you watch these people is that it's like saying you're really into football, but rather than watching premier league, you just want to watch Sunday league. Like this, like why do, if you're into comedy, go and see a professional. Watch, and as you say, what legacy do you have? What do you, and, and, and I think that's really important that you have a legacy. I think as a performer, I'm sure you feel this day. Yeah. 
I, I feel that. I mean, you introduced me as a as a, a producer, but I, I I see myself as I haven't really done that for years. So I, I view myself as a, a performer, and my obsession would be to kind of like have some kind of legacies that you can go watch that. I'm actually. Um, I think it was Matt or David or one of them said to me some years ago, I remember them having a conversation about like Bob Monkhouse and some of those earlier comedians. And they were saying, it's a real shame. So a lot of those great, you know, there's no question Bob Monkhouse was a very good comedian. But if you say like, oh, I really want to watch some Bob Monkhouse, there isn't very much like one audience with. Most of what he did were crappy game shows. And now I suppose the legacy would be like a, a great, well, I don't know, but maybe a great Netflix special or a great whatever it is, you know, and that's what you're working towards, your, you know, meisterworks. So just talking crap on a YouTube channel is not it. And as you say, Howard, like I, you ask your nephews, you know, can you remember anything they say? Can you, what do you remember? There's not, nothing. It's, I think the reason, the reason why is because you have now, you just basically, I think it's because there may have been, I suppose, some uh, creative gap between your average layperson and your creative or your performer. And I think social media uh, combined with reality TV has given rise to this whole new state of, I guess, quasi-celebrity about being a reality star or about being an influencer. And for someone who's a performer, as I said, who is, you know, their work is driven by body of work and legacy and, you know, potentially helping to mold culture or have an effect on culture by, you know, the phenomenon of what you create, just opening conversation and altering perception. I think, like, for these guys... We live in a world of content over creativity, so it's more of an issue of it being quantitative rather than qualitative because people demand the data and content when they're using something like YouTube is that they want to click on this, then they want to click on this link and this link and this link and this link. So people more want the ubiquitousness of an artist rather than just what they, they make. And yeah, I guess because people become more impatient, there are some creatives who do conform to that and they just have more output rather than analyzing the quality of output. I think... Because by that token, if you are still an artist that's more classical in terms of your creativity and doing as and when, you will be able to eventually distinguish yourself from these reality stars and these kind of influencers. But I think, yeah, it's, I agree with you. I think, and I think it's just more of the zeitgeist today where people ironically waste time on social media to make people on social media look like they're doing something. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Which is why it's like, if you watch someone who's like wealthy or influencer, it's like, there's, what job could you have that would allow you this much free time to display your wealth? And I think for most people, though, the aspiration of being able to see the aesthetic of someone achieving the same aspirations they have means more to them than actually seeing how it's done. So 
I just think that what you're looking at with social media is television on steroids. You know, your television, we say television will rot your brain. I think it's just capable of doing it a lot quicker. If your TV can never leave, that's the thing with the phone now, is that it's a television that can never leave your face. At least with the TV, if you need to go to the toilet or eat, you have to leave the room, whereas the phone you can bring with you everywhere. So people have isolated themselves, but social media stops them from feeling lonely. And social media can, you know, people go bankrupt to be able to afford these phones, so they have the opportunity to give the illusion of wealth. So I think, yeah, social media is a waste of time if you're not socializing as a social species. <laughs> it's a good answer. It's a good question. I mean, it's one of those questions we could probably talk about all day because there's so many layers to the answer, right, that you could do. But on, on my, my personal reaction is stop wasting time watching nonsense. Like, it, it really won't mean a lot to a lot of your lives is my personal take. But uh, yeah. Oh, that being said, though, Howard, it's like, what's the funniest clip you've ever seen on You've Been Framed? <laughs> oh, it's definitely cat-based, I imagine. Uh, yeah. yeah. I think, yeah, I, I think we are, it's the new, YouTube has replaced television, and social media has done very similar, so we'll, we'll see what the effects are, I think, over the next 10 years or so. Yeah. I remember well, a Ashley, can you come back in 10 years, Ashley, yeah, and we'll do yeah. it again? I, I know you want to move on to the next question, but I'm determined to have the final word. Uh, you know, I remember I was, when I was a producer at the BBC in 2006, with the whole department got called into a meeting and John Plowman uh, was the head of comedy and he said, I want to talk to you all about this new thing called YouTube. And, you, and he, I, just, I remember the fact that he called it YouTube, like a kind of uncle. <laughs> uh, and he was right though, because he said YouTube is going to completely change everything. We must all get on top of YouTube. And he was right. <laughs> yes. He was right. That's amazing. Well, um, it was a really good question. I think um, we're going to move on to the next question, which is an interesting one for me to ask, because I think me and Dane often want to ask different questions, but actually I think we're both kind of aligned with a similar question here, Ashley. So okay. for the, for the, for the final half hour of this episode, I think we and Dane are going to combine forces because, because my question to you was going to be, is little Britain misunderstood, which is a, a huge area, but then Dane, you were skewing your question in a slightly different direction, right? But would still cover some of the similar territory. Yeah, definitely. So my question was, I mean, combine the two was that like, given like some of the uh, backlash that Little Britain has received of late and some discussions we've had previously and on social media about Afro-Jewish relations, um, how important do you think it is for comedy in terms of improving race relations or just affecting it in general, whether it's uh, positively or negatively? Okay. Wow. Okay, where do I start? Half an hour, spread the spot out, spread the spot out. Okay, all right. Well, look, I haven't talked a lot about this actually over the last few months, because particularly because at the end of the day, Matt and David have made their statements and they've apologised. And, and once they make a statement, in a way, there's nothing for me to add to that. And they, they've, yeah. they've said that. And actually, when you apologise for a lot of things like this, it draws a line. Cause there's nothing you can do once you've, you, know, yeah. you can't go back in time. So you apologise, you acknowledge that you did something that you wouldn't do now and times change and what have you. But I suppose there are uh, lots of things to add to this and, and to talk about for sure. Um, I mean, interestingly, I mean, right, well, let's talk first about the, 
Well, which part of the question should we talk about first? Well, the first uh, part's kind of my part was, yeah. was about whether it was misunderstood. Because yeah. I remember reading about Little, Little Britain being something that was, that was kind of oh, sat- satirising Brits, oh, wasn't it? No, totally misunderstood. Well, totally misunderstood if you see like a few weeks uh, last week or when, when Tim Davey, the new director general, talked about uh, wanting to have to address the kind of political uh, imbalance that there seems to be a lot more left-wing comedy um, and for one to... Do you agree with that? Do I agree with that? Yeah, I suppose I, suppose I do in a, in, in a way because I think that... Uh, what did I see you on the other day? Was it Frankie Boyle were you on? Yeah. Dane? Mm-hmm. You were on Frankie Boyle, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, look, we have a Conservative government. So when you have a Conservative government, it's going to be a lot... It's natural for the satire to be in that direction. So it's kind of difficult. Uh, but yes, I suppose there is definitely... There, there are more left-wing comedians than there are... Uh, you know, that's why... Um, Jeff Norcott has kind of gets wheeled out the whole time because he's uh, kind of, you know, marketing himself as the kind of sole right-wing comedian. But, um, so, yeah, so I, I suppose there is a balance to be to be addressed there. You can't have one a show where there's just, like, one opinion. You wouldn't watch Question Time if it was the guests were Conservative Minister, Conservative Minister, Conservative Minister, Conservative Minister. You have to have balance. So if you have to have balance in political programmes, why wouldn't you have balance on, on comedy shows? But what was really funny when that came out is that Little Britain started trending again and people were going, oh, we're going to have right-wing shows like Little Britain. Well, I mean, do me a favour. I mean, <laughs> if you're talking, if you're, if you're then saying that is a misunderstood show, if you're talking, if that's your question, Howard, is the show misunderstood? Well, by that hashtag... I would say it was definitely misunderstood because clearly it's not a right wing show. Um, yeah, was, very clearly. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's led it, by a gay man from far. No, two two men who are definitely. Yeah, two men who are not uh, uh, right wing, not no. people with right wing views. They're not. It's no. It's just. It's total nonsense. And the program clearly was intending to. Well, the genesis of the program was that Matt and David wanted to do a character sketch show. At the yeah. time. We, when we first started developing it, there had the advice that was given and the kind of the line that was kind of being peddled at the time was that you couldn't just go, you know, and things change all the time, it's cyclical, but you couldn't just go, we're two funny guys, we're going to do a sketch show. That wasn't the thing. You had to have a hook to hang it on. There'd just been Goodness Gracious Me, which is the Asian sketch show. They'd just uh, done a, a, a show called um, Yes, So I Can Boogie, which was a disabled sketch show. They just piloted a gay sketch show. Like, everything had to have some kind of hook. And so we were kind of looking for a hook, and it was just a survey of Britain today. That it had to have some reason to exist. You couldn't just go, here's funny characters. Uh, and that's it. It's just, and then people say, oh, it, well, it's dumbing down. Uh, not dumbing down. Um, not dumbing down. Uh, um, punching, punching down. down sorry, yeah. punching down. Thank you. Uh, punching down. Well, firstly, that's not true because there's a whole range of characters. There are characters who are like the bitty character who's clearly very yeah. upper class. And there's uh, the MP who's always apologising outside his house and those kind of characters down to the Vicky Pollard. But the other thing with the, the punching down, I've oh, that again is such a new phrase of like, kind of cancel culture era phrase I'd never heard before. 
so much comedy is, is I was rewatching uh, Only Fools and Horses the other day. Only Fools and Horses, the entire show is punching down. We're laughing at uh, two people, with, well, three people with no money who live in a council estate in Peckham, who he's so thick he doesn't re- really understand the French he's speaking. He says bonjour for goodbye. We're laughing at Trigger, who's even thicker than Del Boy. Um, if that's not punching down, I don't know what is. But there you go. I mean, I think sometimes people, that's what we going back to my question. You see that with social media, a bandwagon gets going. And, and mm-hmm. once it gets going, it's very hard to stop it. And people get into their head these ideas that something is either right wing or that it's punching down when that's really not the case at all. And I mean, it was such an interesting time for all of this stuff, right? I mean, Dane, we've talked about it a few times on this podcast, haven't we? And, you know, you look at the incident that happened with Famalan last couple of weeks. Yeah, exactly. So I think think there's a thing with sketch comedy now that you're definitely, your breadth of premise is a lot wider than your normal kind of show or if you're doing a particular sketch strand. And I think because of that, and like I said, it's the democracy of social media whereby, you know, I was the analogy is like you're serving up food for thought. And normally, if someone's at a buffet or you have like a plethora of different dishes, you are able to skip the ones you don't want and go to the stuff you do want. But social media means people will scrutinize the stuff, even they don't want to consume it, just for it existing. And I think that's the issue with Little Britain is that there may be something that someone seems to be a point of contention and it causes condemnation of the entire uh, vehicle. Um, but I think, yeah, it, it's, I just think it's a strange moment anyway, a lot of the time unless people do it very conspicuously to even try and categorize comedy along these bi- these uh, binary lines of being mm. left or right wing. Yeah, of course. Because, Absolutely. you know, The Simpsons, for example, could be considered liberal, but The Simpsons is a show that's been produced and been broadcasted by Fox, which is known for being, you know, conspicuously uh, conservative with Fox News and obviously Rupert Murdoch owning the network and stuff as well. So, as far as I, think- Britain, I, I was asked a few times about it a lot of time and, I think my answer is, and it still is, is that, like, you know, I've watched uh, Matt Lucas and, and uh, David Wallings from as far back as when they were doing Rock Profile, which I thought to be amazing. And I think that was a continuation of it. And, you know, it's nice for reason that the way I saw Matt Lucas depicting a few of the characters, it was definitely more of an homage than him trying to do like a lazy stereotype. And, oh, I, um, I agree. Yeah. And I just think, you know, my issue is not really so much with the misrepresentation that you might have seen in some of the characters in Little Britain. It's the absence of a counter aesthetic from black creative existing. That's the real issue. In, and that's an, why in another show. In another show, yeah. In their own like show, the yeah. yeah. Is, it's in their own show, because the thing is, it's like when you have this, uh, the balance and you have, like, you know, the wealth of aesthetics and varied aesthetics, then if you see what might be the misrepresentation, it's fine because you know that Little Britain, as an audience, won't form their perceptions of people of color based on what they see in this. Right, right, and right. I think sometimes, yeah. even, and I think even some of the archetypes people saw in Little Britain, like you know the woman that threw up at the idea of interracial mixing and stuff. I don't think that's a celebration of that particular aesthetic. That's more of a parody of it and just embellishing it for comedic effect. Because there are some people who balk at the image of an interracial relationship or the paradigm of interracial families to the point where it's like, how can something you see sicken you? Which is what I think the guys are playing up with that particular character. Exactly. There's so many layers to it, aren't there? No, that's one of the most but, fascinating things. That one of the biggest layers is always, always to me just the fact that people, you know, want to be offended. <laughs> that's, yeah, you know, that's that's what they're looking for, right? I, I think you're right, and I think look, it's very hard for me as a 
you know, as a, a white man, a white middle class man, to say you're wrong if you tell me you're offended by something you know a black person is offended by something i I can't say well you're wrong but you can certainly enter a dialogue into something and i mean i produced rock profile Uh, i'm glad you're a fan of that dane and i remember and i you know i love that show we we did um it was the first tv show i produced and we did in that probably about 20 non-white characters and yeah. uh, so, you know, from Stevie Wonder to uh, Macy Gray to Prince. Funnily enough, we even played uh, George Harrison, who is white, <laughs> as an Asian man. He played as an Indian. <laughs> and Matt was kind of going, oh, yes, I'm George Harrison. Uh, and, you know, make it that what you will. But the, and I, I shared an office at the time with someone called Carlton Dixon. I don't know if you know Carlton. I don't know what he does now, actually. But he was a producer at the BBC at the time, black, uh, and we were good friends. And he said to me once, I love you guys, and I, I love what you do, but I hate all that. I really hate all the dressing up, as, the blacking up he used to. I, we never called it those terms, but for want of a better term, he called it that. He said, I hate that. I wish you stopped doing that. I hate it. And I remember we discussed it at you know, great lengths, probably a good hour or two hours just talking about it. And I still came away, even though I take entirely on board him as a black man telling me as a white person what he likes and doesn't like is completely, you know, he has greater legitimacy than me. I still came away, I would say, slightly unconvinced that just because he personally didn't like something, that it was necessarily the wrong thing to have done at that time. And in fact, at that time, it should also be said, by the way, with regards to Little Britain, I think this isn't said enough, Everyone did it. Everyone. There is barely a comedy show of that time. You know, Reeves and Mortimer doing Otis Redding and Marvin Gaye. Um, Chris Morris doing Fur Q. There is almost no one who hasn't done that. Uh, would you do it now? Uh, no. Lee Francis as well in both selections. Well, Lee Francis obviously that can, and, and Lee Francis actually is a, I think, and that's obviously what started this whole thing. And actually, I think you could make more of a a case, a negative case to this stuff, but I, I, that's not for me to say. But, uh, you know, in terms of, um, but in terms of this show, they were playing those characters, uh, rock, you know, rock profiles about playing lots of different uh, pop stars, didn't want to limit themselves to only the white ones in the same way that I heard Harry Enfield interviewed recently saying, well, I've played every prime minister and if Rishi Sunak becomes prime minister, I'd still like to be able to play him. Um, because I've just played everyone, a man, a woman, you, you know, a Scottish man or English man. You know, I want to be able to play all of them. Um, now, look, that's clearly, it, things have moved on, you know, and, and uh, you know, I, and I've seen, you know, it was funny when Little Britain was like trending, suddenly like uh, white chicks was trending because all the, certain people are going, oh, yeah. well, if they can do it, you know. But I remember saying to Carlton at that time, saying saying how much I loved coming to America, for example, and they played Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall played the white Jewish barbers. And they're great. They're brilliant. It's really funny. And I think the key thing is, as you say, is that is the intention and whether the intention is to stereotype or to um hurt to hurt sometimes you can genuinely see as what I find one of the most interesting things in this conversation for me is 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 the work of Seth MacFarlane in Family Guy and American Dad, which I would say is the most offensive comedy 
arguably on the planet because they will go for everyone. However, they get away with it because everyone's animated, right? So you never feel like you're really offended. Is that fair? Or I mean, I think it depends who you are. I think art and the critique of art is equally subjective as far as I'm concerned. So there's always been something someone doesn't like. For example, if you get to produce a TV show, actually, and someone doesn't get the opportunity to produce it, the odds are they're not going to like whatever you make because your prosperity means that they have to lose out on something. I mean, that's very common in, in comedy. I think so far as like Family Guy, I think it's more of the fact that the jokes are framed as lowest common denominator and people, like you mentioned on social media, when they see this series of jokes, which are always a lot of times the non sequiturs or they're random jokes that aren't related to the narrative itself in uh, Family Guy, they can laugh at it and it, because I think it's not any part of the, the story itself, it's almost as if they've taken a break to look at social media. And I think a lot of time when you've got jokes that are, you know, very superficial, they're going to deal with what? Issues that are skin deep and they're going to reference stereotypes and they're going to be parodies of that or play it up. So One of the issues I, I think uh, is to what extent you really need to have like a kind of utilitarian approach and not worry about very small minorities. I read an article from uh, Daniel Finkelstein a few months ago. He made a very good point that if you had, we're a country of how many people in this country? 665 million people, whatever. If you had 1% of the country sign a petition, right? That's a lot of people. And you go, wow, six, you know, 650,000 people have signed this petition saying that this show is racist. And you go, wow, that's a lot of people. You're still talking about 1%. You're talking about such t- And we get bowled over sometimes by listening to very loud minorities. I don't mean minorities in the sense of like racial minorities. But we listen sometimes to minority voices. And, I mean, so, for example... It's because they're more, like, they're more galvanised on social media, I think, so that's a good point. Well, we they, there you go. When you're in a, when you're in a high school, the, the, the small table in, like, the canteen of the kids that hate everything is a small table in the canteen. And so when they make Detroit statements about people with the whole class, the whole campus or the school body, it doesn't really make a difference. Now that they have a landscape whereby that table of people and that table of people and that table can now all galvanise, and so they, their table is the equivalent of the size of a whole canteen in a normal school, so as you said, this is why minority voices and detractors have a lot more credence than they used to because they can appear galvanized on social media. Right, exactly. So and, if you look at... Say, some... And they go to the effort of complaining as well. And they don't, they're the ones that will go to the effort of tweeting as well because most exactly. people, I think, their position is relatively centrist. So they might not like something. But what we normally do if we don't like something is you switch over. Exactly. You have a choice. Exactly. You have a choice. Don't watch it. Um, so certainly, like, come fly with me. There, I've seen a lot of Asian people for example, saying how much they love Taj. They didn't find Taj offensive. But you will find many people who said they didn't like it, and that's fine. And that's and now, now if, to what, what level do you have to get to to go, no, that is, this is not any longer a subjective thing, this is an objective thing, and we can't do this anymore. That's a really interesting that's a really well, interesting it question. It goes back to the thing of it goes back to the thing of you saying uh, what's a waste of time or not, and <laughs> you know if the democratization of media uh, through the internet has facilitated all these conversations largely, then why why bother policing anything really? Other than other than when it comes out of the BBC or you know it comes out of a main broadcaster, that's where it changes, well, right? So that and, and and then what that creates and it just leads into kind of Dane's side of this question a little bit more is is it creates this thing where race relations are so 
um, broken because nobody feels they can comment on anyone's thing, well, which I think, you know, in the case of the Famalam sketch was, I mean, look, if people found that offensive, I, I, you can't argue with them, right? But it doesn't, does it therefore mean it's not funny? No, that's what I'm saying. How to, if I've never done a show that at least one person didn't like or one person didn't go, I don't find that funny or I find that offensive. You don't, you make the shows for the people who like what you do. You don't make shows for the people who don't like what you do. That goes as a producer or as a, as a performer. I'm sure you agree with that, Dane. And, you know, you want to serve your fans. You want to, they're the people who like you. And the people who don't like you, go and see someone else. It's fine. I, you know, and the same thing goes with, for TV. Look, the other thing that gets forgotten with all of that Little Britain Come Fly With Me stuff is that people go, oh, uh, you know, these two guys are terrible and what have you. The number of hoops you have to jump through, the number of people that have to sign something off, you know, it, it's ridiculous. And even the press is, is often uh, complicit in this. I remember when Joe Brand was on Have I Got News For You and she made a joke about throwing battery acid in Nigel Farage's face. And it was on the front cover of The Sun saying, ban this woman from TV forever. And you think, hang on, that's not Joe's fault. I've produced loads of shows where comedians have said all kinds of terrible things. I've not kept it in the show. You need to yeah. question the producer who left it in, the, all the people who signed the compliance forms, the exec producers who went, no, that's fine, that can go out. As a performer on a panel show, you can say whatever you like. I could say anything now. It's your choice. Whether, I don't know if you edit this at all, but decide yeah, yeah. whether to keep it in or not. Uh, so, you know, in the same way, so many people have to sign off on these things. I'll tell you a funny anecdote, though. I was working on another show. I won't say what it was. Uh, another show. Uh, I won't say what it was, but that was going to be on B- was on BBC Three around the time that Little Britain was at absolute height. And it was a sketch show, and we had a sketch in it where they were playing an Asian character, I think. And the BBC said no to it, wouldn't allow it in. And the, the exec, I was like a script editor or something, but the producer or exec producer who is an Asian man uh, phoned the BBC or have you emailed and said, but, you know, Matt and David are doing this. And, and their reply genuinely was, they've earned the right. Is <laughs> extraordinary. Uh, extraordinary. I mean, that's genuine. Wow. That's what they said. And look, look, now, you know, no one's got the right and I don't think we'll see that stuff for a very long time possibly ever um but uh there was a sense you know that people of a certain status could you know you've kind of earned the right to to do certain things and it's a very it's a very nuanced thing i've very i've i've always been um a, a fan of probably from my childhood of al jolson uh, completely separate, or this one's not a comedian, but a singer. And what's the amazing thing is reading, I was reading quite a bit about Al Jolson after, in, you know, in light of, you know, Al Jolson, for those listeners who don't know, is the, probably the most famous blackface comedian, uh, comedian, singer. Um, he, when he died, like half the, half the mourners were black. And he had several black people carrying his coffin. He was absolutely beloved by the African American community. Uh, um, he 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 was very he had, he fought very much for civil rights on Broadway for black performers to be able to perform and what have you. And while we don't do those things now, and you're not going to see someone coming out and performing, you know, Swanee River and, and Mummy and what have you with the black face and the white lips. Um, that doesn't mean that everyone who did that had kind of evil intentions. 
we view it and it's very hard to now view those things kind of through our current lens just as much as in a hundred years time we'll look back at people will look back at us and what we did and it won't stand up to them yeah i think think that's very true i mean i've so far as al dolson i mean i only remember him for the blackface like you said because under that whole umbrella phenomenon the umbrella of that phenomenon very ready with the intention to be benevolent and also you know most people probably are not aware of Al Johnson's work for civil rights, if, if, which, he was also, which he was also doing. And I think that brings it back to the issue myself, personally, I have not so much, well, with the institution of not so much Little Britain as an institution, but it's really more of the representation of archetypes for people of colour or black people, where there is a massive absence of the counter aesthetics from black creatives. So, as I said, for me, it's like, you know, if, if, if I'm aware that like people that want to depict certain people are also fighting for that culture to have a presence within that same institution, that's very different to someone just like, I like that aspect of a culture and I want to parody it without any kind of prior research. But yeah, I, I just think that, you know, there are a lot of things that may not necessarily stand up, but I think what has been ongoing, and I think, which is, and, and I say it's always the issue when it comes to representation is not so much how it might be represented or if it's done by a propagandist or a creative, but it's more, the fact that there's no opportunity for a battle. And I think I think at the time when Al Johnson was realizing his prominence and maybe at the height of his status, we still had a social state which which prevented legally black people from even being present in these uh, venues, much less being able to appear on stage. And I think that's been a large problem, especially in the UK, whereby America, and this is part of the, the linked question, is that America, you know, despite having very, uh, you know, very conspicuous and very ostentatious displays of racial iniquity, at the same time, for those who are like to, who are willing to indulge a narrative from African Americans, for example, they've almost been they've had a wealth of uh, narratives from people. So you know, I would say that from lineage as far back as like you know, a Dick Gregory being the first African American on TV, and then seeing like Red Fox, and that begat a uh, you know, a Eddie Murphy and a Chris Rock, and so their list continues. So there is a representation or a rebuttal that you can even have a platform whereby you can, you know. Uh, scrutinize or even celebrate these uh, representations of ourselves. And we can actually have that discussion and that critique. Mm. And I think that in turn will enlighten, you know, white creatives who do, who are interested in like the certain aspects of black culture and creativity and want to be able to carry that correctly or show in a mastery correctly. Mm. But I just think in the UK, that is, uh, has been massively lacking for many mm. years. And I think the subtext of the frustration when people project that frustration onto Little Britain is that, you know, something like Little Britain shows that two men of a certain age can have a long-running successful sketch show which does show some very relevant and very funny uh, depictions of contemporary culture. And for me, the paradox of that being is that for a lot of time, contemporary culture and youth culture is very much linked to black culture, but you don't see the same representation. And so even when you're like, you know, a lot of hoops have to be gone through, it's like, I think because most black people don't even get to go past the first hoop and then it's the added insult of having someone who is not of your culture try to instruct you on how to best represent that on TV adds to the frustration. So I think in your particular case, actually, like, you know, you are a, a comedic uh, performer yourself. So it's almost like you've been on both sides of the microphone. So you can work adroitly with someone like uh, with Matt and David, for example, and realize a vision that's going to be, you know, have comedy and have depth and have this representation and have that conversation. Whereas I feel like with in our industry is that there are a lot of things that are supposed to be geared towards or representative of black British culture, for example, but at no point in that logistic chain are black Britons consulted. 
And I think if there was more of that presence and that representation on the other side of the microphone and in boardrooms, then it's not really about shutting things down, but having a more accurate and actually a more refined finished product just serves well to, I think, the art form in general is to have people that know what they're talking about working it. So going back to what we were discussing, the first question about Jean-Claude Van Damme, you know, one of the reasons that I think himself and a lot of the uh, actors like himself or saw a decline in their uh, careers is because once you had, you know, we, we were exposed to like the Matrix and the Wachowski brothers actually insisted on the protagonist being trained in martial arts and having went Yen Wu Ping choreographed as martial arts. Now that people can see a, the genuine article, seeing this kind of like substitute or substandard thing doesn't work for you anymore. You know, if you know, you can see a John Woo film, it's very hard for you to see a film where the, the fight scenes are very scattered and doesn't make any sense. And I think it's the same thing with like comedy as well, is that once there's accurate representation, then there's a lot less of this frustration because it's, because I think comedy, and that's, and that's one of the most uh, significant things about this art form is that this provides an honest form of politics and provides you with platforms to give narratives on your journey and give it more accurately. So for example, my awareness of, you know, the transgender community if I insisted on some parts of comedy, we'd just be seeing men in drag. But there is a narrative and there's a journey that accompanies that phenomenon, which I would have only been able to learn from trans comedians. So I think it's, it's not so much that, like, the misrepresentation always from people that may only have a superficial understanding of a particular thing. It's more the industry's reluctance to indulge the people that are being represented here with their own opportunity to do the same. Yeah, no, I hear. I mean, actually, interestingly, the the thing about Jean Claude Van Damme and those the, that kind of analogy actually works quite well with the Al Jolsons of this world because that was, in a way, a I suppose a gateway to black music. He, he actually introduced black music to a whether it's a, a, an appropriation, but it's still an introduction is in a gateway. Uh, and in the same way, those kind of films with, with poor uh, European actors as like a gateway to then the real deal. Although, even though yeah. we also had the opportunity to watch Bruce Lee and Bruce Lee and Bruce Lee and Bruce Lee. But, you know, in that way. Um, comedy here, we're talking about something slightly different. You, you've, just, you've just got a problem of, well, you're making a sketch show, it's about everyone or it's a sketch show or it's a, rather it's a spoof obs docs at an airport. Well, go to Heathrow airport. M- many, many people aren't white. So what do you do? Yeah. And then you, you have an issue. Do you cast You know, anyway, there you go. Look, we know things have, there's no, we, there's no point in almost making a case for it because things have changed. That's we know that things have changed. It's not like anyone's going to say, "Well, I'd, I'd like to be able to do that now." That that things have changed. I think the other just to answer uh, the second question though, I think it was an interesting question because despite everything I've said, as a writer, performer, producer, you also have to remember that you have a responsibility, and you can write a joke which is entirely defensible and I could stand here, sit here and say, I I can defend this or go on TV and any right to reply show and say, I can defend this, but you still have to think, do you want to be responsible for the ramifications of it? Um, You know, in only fools and horses, they often have in episodes like uncle Albert going, I guess, just the packy won't let us have any milk. We've run out of credit, whatever. And sometimes they've edited it out and sometimes they haven't. 
And, and there's part of me that hates that, the fact that they can't edit it out. Why can't a character in, that's what that character would say. Why can't we have that? And, I, and, and you know, it's not endorsing it. It's, that's just what the character, it's in like in an Alf Garnet way. It's specifically it's contextual. I mean, yeah. Right, but here's the big but. Do you want on your conscience, as a writer, performer, producer, do you want on your conscience the next day a little six-year-old boy Indian Pakistani boy in school being called a Paki by the rest of the class. And if yeah. that kid is being kind of brutalized and bullied and what have you with racial terms because it was on TV last night, you don't really want that on your conscience. So I think that's the counterbalance. That is something that I think writer, performers, producers all have to take in, into account when they do stuff on TV and radio. Not when you do stand up because the, the impact obviously is very small. It's just in the room. But when you're talking about something that's going to reach millions of people, you, we all have to bear in mind the impact that it can have. And I think that is definitely trying to make the world a better place. We need to sometimes think about it. Well, it's been, a, it's been a brilliant episode to, to, to sit and talk this through with you, uh, Ashley, because, um, yeah, people need to talk about it at great length, right? It's, not, it's important. It's not just in a tweet. It's a waste of time in a tweet, right? No, hundred percent. You can't. Well, there's no nuance to it. Hopefully, we've hopefully we've, we've helped the conversation today, Dane. Right? We've helped further it. Oh, definitely. I mean, I think I think the key word to take away from that is nuance, and I think you know that is how what is what art should be as well. So, as I say, I think the more media opens up the world to a lot more nuance, the more we we'll get a more rounded idea of the world, and like these uh, creations will uh, be referred to as they're supposed to be creations rather than them being used as like you know uh, points of. Uh, political attacks on the other yeah. side well said so, well it's been brilliant to have you have you on the show Ashley. no thank you for coming pleasure pleasure and uh just for our listeners Ashley, when you're not looking after your uh text tablets and uh, your big brood um what are you working on at the moment where people can find you uh well i've said social media is a waste of time so don't bother. <laughs> it, would be, it would be inconsistent of me to now say look me up on social media i am on social media obviously my name's ashley blake uh, so i'm actually blake on twitter and whatever but follow me on social media you can enjoy the fact that i tweet no more you can you can follow me with this knowledge that i will only tweet 1.5 times a week and if you reply to me i will not even read it there you go. Like a, like a regular person who talks to the yeah. interaction with a stranger. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck with the, with the radio show, Ashley. I hope it all works out. Thank, um, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you and, very uh, much. Yeah. We'll, I will look forward to your next horrible racist bigoted creation. <laughs> <laughs> Take uh, But yeah, please send, send love to Matt and David. Tell them to do, let's, let's work together. And uh, yeah, right. thank you so much for coming on the Dave. podcast. And uh, you, have a wonderful day, Ashley. Take Cheers, care. Bye. You've been listening to Dane Baptiste Questions Everything, hosted by Dane Baptiste. For more from Dane, go to danebaptiste.co.uk or follow him on Twitter at DaneBaptweets or Instagram at DaneSnapTiste. Our guest was Ashley Blaker. You can follow Ashley on Twitter at Ashley Blaker or on Instagram at the Ashley Blaker. The show was produced by me, Howard Cohen. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at the Howard Cohen. The show is mixed and mastered by Decode. You can follow D on Twitter and Instagram at Official Decode. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. 
you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at DBQE Podcast. Thanks to Polly, Gelly and the Acast team for all their support. Thanks for listening, guys. And remember, question everything. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.